Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today we are going angling in a podcast way. We're joined by Jim Dixon, who is a bookseller on Ape Books. Jim joins us on the telephone from Derbyshire in the UK. His Ape Books account is called UK Countryside Bookseller, but you can also find his books for sale at several antique centres around Derbyshire. He specialises in antiquarian books about the English countryside. He offers books on farming, natural history, rural life and countryside pastimes, which of course includes angling. Jim has a significant collection of copies of The Complete Angler by Isaac Walton, the great granddaddy of all angling books. Previously, he also served as Chief Executive Officer of the Peak District National Park for 11 years. Just saying Peak District makes me rather homesick. The Peak District is an area of outstanding natural beauty covering parts of Derbyshire, Staffordshire, Cheshire and Yorkshire and it's the most wonderful place to walk and explore. Welcome Jim. Hello, Richard. Hello. Lovely to be talking to you from uh, the beautiful Derbyshire Peak District. And it's lovely to be hearing about someone back home, so. All right. Good. First question. Why are you so passionate about books about the English countryside? What do you find so compelling about them? Well, I, I suppose I've, I've, I've always been interested in wildlife and nature and landscapes, and I've been really lucky to have I've worked in this sphere all my life, I've worked for organisations like the RSPB, the biggest conservation organisation in Britain. I've worked for DEFRA, the Environment Department, the Government Department, and I worked in the National Parks for 11 years as well. And I still today have lots and lots of hands in all of those pies. I write a column for the Times once a month on nature. So I've always been interested in nature. And I suppose it starts from when I was a kid and I used to cycle out to the village of Selborne in Hampshire. And uh, for those in the world of books will know the natural history of Selborne, published in 1795, was one of the very, very first scientific observational natural history books on the English countryside. And uh, I suppose I've just been hooked ever since. And... Um I, I can't help but notice um, there's an author, Robert McFarlane, who seems to be doing the most amazing job of describing the wonders of the English countryside. So I, I'm sure you have the same sort of feelings about him. Well, Robert is a, is a, is a, is a, well, he's a polymath and a genius and a great leader of something that's going on in the moment in Britain. I think there's an incredible um, renaissance in nature writing in Britain. And Robert's very much at the front of it. Robert's big thesis is that there isn't just one historical figure that stands out as the great nature writer, but actually uh, there are lots and lots. There's William Wordsworth in the Lake District, Thomas Hardy in Wessex, uh, John Clare in the Midlands, um, and of course uh, in my little patch of the world here in the Peak District, Isaac Warren. And all of these individual writers, naturalists, countrymen, all knew their patch really well. They were they were scientists. They were people that recorded and monitored, but they were also people with an emotional attachment. And I think what's brilliant about Robert's work and the writers that Robert champions is that uh, that that emotional and scientific connection with the landscape is there. Robert's books on um, on the the lost words 
and uh, his latest book is The Lost Mythology of the Countryside. These are all things that connect our minds and our culture with the land and the landscape. So a great, great leader of natural history writing at the moment, uh, Robert. And great walkers too, like tremendous walkers. But Robert's been, uh, I mean, a lot of his writing is very much based on that personal experience. And again, if you go, if you read something like Richard Jeffrey's books, Richard Jeffries, who wrote about the landscape around Swindon on the, the downland of uh, the English southern southern areas. And Richard Jeffries wrote about what he saw in great detail, the grass snakes in the brook, the, the, the skylarks singing above the wheat fields. Um, and that observational, um, uh, that observational thing that puts nature in its place as opposed to just sort of if you go back throughout ancient history people had lots of mythological understandings of nature and i think where people like gilbert white richard jeffries and in the modern era people like richard maybe and richard uh, robert mcfarlane they put nature in its place and i think that's a really important thing to do we need to understand that we are a part of nature we live in that environment and uh, you know, I think it's it's a really important part of um, literary Britain today, and it's really vibrant, terrific range of young writers, black and ethnic minority writers, all sorts of people writing about nature with great enthusiasm. Now, angling. Let's get on to the main subject. Yeah. How long have people been writing about angling? Well, it's um, there's there's. As long as people have been writing, they've been writing about the, the pursuits, um, the country pursuits. And of course, um, you know the kinds of people that that wrote that, that wrote books. You know, the clergy, uh, the gentlemen, the, the great people of the great estates, the people that could afford the time to write and had the education. Often, were people who were involved in country sports. One of my favourites is. Humphrey Davy, a very famous chemist, uh, discovered lots of chemical elements. But he, in his early days, he was a very enthusiastic sportsman. And his book, Salmonia, is a really brilliant description of the lifestyle of the salmon, uh, salmon trout fish. Uh, so, so you've got you've got people that go right back. Lady Lady Berners, um, who was supposedly the the the, the first person to start writing about angling. And then, of course, 1653, the book, which which has just sort of been the cornerstone of angling since, was um, Isaac Walton's first uh, foray into publishing The Complete Angler. So, the, the Complete Angler, that's a book published in 1653. What's its significance? Well, I think when you... You know, it's we we now know it as the complete angler by Walton and Cotton. So in later editions, um, there was additional um, contribution by Charles Cotton and Cotton and Walton were great pals. They, they were separated by many years in age difference, but they were great fishing pals, and they fished together on the Dove, which is on the border of Derbyshire and Staffordshire in the Midlands of England. And I think what's there are three things about it that, that really make it stand out. First of all, they write about the quarry species, 
with an inquiring mind. It's very, li- it's very light natural history writing. They write about the behaviour of the fish and the ecology of the rivers, and in that sense, very much a predecessor to a lot of scientific natural history. But they also write about the landscape, the environment, and they have a poetic and a spiritual appreciation of the landscape, which I think is really, really interesting. And I suppose the other thing that's really interesting is it's about the relationship between the two men. It's about camaraderie. It's about the pleasure that the two people have in their company. And I think those things together make it a really heady mix of of, of a fantastic thing. It's not just a technical volume of how to get fish out of a river. There's an awful lot more to it than that. So really it's a sort of a a book about a, a joy of life. Yes, yes, I think it is. And of course, in, in slightly archaic language, it's a bit difficult to follow, to be honest. And I, in all honesty, the, the sections written by Cotton, who was a bit more of a poet, are a little bit easier to read than the sections written by Walton. But the, the, the spirit of the book is what's important. And the spirit of the book is very much, I think, something that, that, that plays through to our own understanding today about our relationships between each other and our relationships with the land. So I'm guessing like the, the angling genre must cover a, a wide style of books, instructional, almost spiritual, uh, where to go, what equipment to use, um, all of those sort of subjects, I, I guess, not being a, an angler or a, an expert on this genre. Well, I've, 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 I'm relatively new to this business, and I take my hat off to those brilliant booksellers like Sutherland's in London and James Cummins in New York and uh, Harewood Books in East Anglia, who've been doing this for a long time. Uh, but what I have discovered is that there really are a huge variety. I mean, <coughs> one of my favorite books is uh, a book called The Book of the Grayling by T.E. Pritt. And T.E. Pritt was the Yorkshire Post's uh, angling editor in the middle of the 19th century. And there are two chapters, and it says all about him and how to catch him. So in typical Yorkshire directness, very direct, and a really lovely, beautifully presented book, but quite narrow in its, its, uh, um, its interpretation of angling. But another one of my favourite books is... Um, Fly Fishing by Sir Edward Grey. And Sir Edward Grey was the Foreign Secretary, uh, Britain's Foreign Secretary during the First World War. So an immensely important statesman, uh, longest serving Foreign Secretary of the 20th century, and a, a, a great ornithologist, and a great field sportsman. And his book, uh, Fly Fishing, is one of the best reads. It's an absolutely beautiful book to read full of technical expertise, but also very beautifully written. Written by a man who had so much else on his plate um, in his life. And I think that's a, a great book. There are many, many other books, right up to the modern books today by um, Hugh Falkes, of course, the, uh, the great doyen of British salmon fishing. You know, Hugh Falkes' books, very technical, how to do things, very opinionated. Um, excellent sort of instructional books uh, but then there are the more whimsical there are the more books books that are more about the the experience of fly fishing the experience of fishing 
and there are many, many books I could list the hundreds that I've got and the hundreds that I find fascinating. It sounds awfully like um, the genre of cricket books. <laughs> yes. How to play, I'm the joy of playing, where to play, why I'm yes. so bad at it. Yes. Well, it's, uh, one of the famous books on fishing was called A Miserable Day in Paradise, <laughs> which I think uh, sums up most fishermen have had a miserable day in paradise um, when they've had a bad day with the fishing, but they know they're in a beautiful place. Like a combination of misery and joy. Yes, yes. Well, this, again, I think that's, that, this is why I think fish, fishing is such a brilliant pastime to, to remove stress and worry, because there's so many things you have to focus on. As a fly fisherman, you have to, you've got to think about your casting and the way you present the fly on the water, your choice of fly, the, the, food, the food that the fish is taking, the way the fish is taking the food, uh, the way you're presenting your alternative artificial fly, the way you keep out of the fish's vision, um, and all of those things that then eventually lead you to catching a fish, pulling it in, and looking at that brilliant bar of gold and red and, and, and beautiful colours of an English brown trout. And, and all of that is very, very absorbing and fantastically good for your mental well-being. I can certainly vouch for that. And... Uh so you have a, a collection of complete anglers. Perhaps you can tell us a little bit about it, please. Well, I've obviously been aware ever since I moved to the Peak District and I had a professional, a personal interest in this amazing landscape and its beautiful moorland and the fantastic dales and streams. And in all that time, I fished and I read about the Peak District. Uh, but I was always aware that there was this very, very special book and I remember on a, a visit to New York, I visited James Cummins' booksellers uh, in New York, you know, the holy grail of booksellers in the world, I suppose, in many eyes. And I was very taken by the fact that they had 100 editions of The Complete Angler, which was fantastic for me because this was the book from my patch. And I went into the bookshops in my local area and I couldn't find copies of The Complete Angler. So uh, about that time, I'd started selling books and antiques locally, and I began to build up a collection, and I've now got a, over 100 editions. I've got about 130 books, but 130, 100 editions of The Complete Angler. Um, I don't have a first edition. Those are rare entities and rather valuable things. Uh, but I do have a third fourth and later editions and I have those for sale in my bookshop uh, here at Cromford in Cromford Mill in Derbyshire and also online on 8 books as well so I, I, I thought it was important that our local book selling world um, could, could do justice to this uh, remarkable uh, author renowned throughout the world I was cataloguing a book the other day, Fly Fishing in South New South Wales, and the first thing on the, as you open the book, is a facsimile page of The Complete Angler. <laughs> so the Australian anglers see The Complete Angler as their, you know, their, their, their Bible, 
and I know across the whole of the United States, the, the complete angler and the, Wal the Walton legacy um, is very, very strong. Um, so I thought it was important that we, here in Derbyshire, here in this limestone landscape and um, of, of, of the rivers um, that Walton knew and Walton wrote about, that we should be selling the books here. And I have to say it's been a very successful venture um, commercially as well as a fascinating one as well. So I, I went to high school in a town called Stafford and every day on the school bus I would go through a village called Great Bridgeford and there was a sign to Isaac Walton's cottage on the road. Yes, I yes. passed it every day. I always wondered why well, it was so we, important. In, in Derbyshire, we, we like to think that he was a Derbyshire writer, but in fact it was the Staffordshire-Derbyshire border. In fact, the, the Staffordshire-Derbyshire border runs through the River Duff. Uh, so you can fish on one side, you could be fishing in Derbyshire in the morning and Staffordshire the other side of the uh, brook in the afternoon. Um, so it's, um, it's very much that Peak District landscape. Um, and um, Walton was a very important person. He was a very important writer. He wrote about, um, he was a bit of a nonconformist. Uh, he didn't like the Britain of the Civil War. He, he wrote quite critically of a lot of the political leaders at the time. Um, um, uh, so he, he was, you know, really his output of books was more about um, the political um, situation of England at the uh, end, the middle and end of the 17th century than actually his output on angling, although it's his output on angling which is the one that's survived. That, that's the, the Puritan regime you're talking about? Yes, yes, yes. He was, um, you know, he was very much somebody who, he was a, a he was, um, he spent time at, um, in, in, in Farnham, which was actually the town I was brought up in, um, um, and was, was venerated by the bishops of Winchester, very powerful people at the time. And uh, he was a great um, theological and political thinker. Um, um, and I think you get elements of that in The Complete Angler. You know, that um, sense of understanding your place in the landscape and the importance of different disciplines. I mean, that, you know, that very classic thing that actually starts The Complete Angler, where the different sportsmen have a dialogue about which is the most valuable sport, you know. And that sort of sense of contrarianism, we would call it today, very much Walton's style, which, as I say, if you read Cotton's, Charles Cotton's work, Charles Cotton himself was, was famous for writing lots and lots of other books on, uh, he was a, a reputative of the man that um, uh, discovered um, um, chess and um, um, drafts and other board games. He was a great advocate of those. But Cotton was more of a poet he was a very much a landscape poet, and I think, you know, I actually think that either writer would have stood on their own as towering figures in um, the, the world of writing on rivers, um, even if they hadn't collaborated on The Complete Angler. I couldn't help noticing that the book is dedicated to a man called John Offley, who's a Staffordshire landowner. Was, that, was, yes. uh, was he a fishing buddy of... Um, well, of course, Walton. again, it, I mean, most most books in Derbyshire 
throughout you know history were all dedicated to the Dukes of Devonshire or the Dukes of Rutland or the Earl of Derby because you know after the church these people became enormously powerful they were the great uh, um, they were the great uh, um, supporters of intellectual rigor and writing and so on I mean um, George Frederick Handel the, the, the composer composed the water music not on the River Thames in London but when he lived on the brook on the borders of uh, he lived on the edge of the Dove the River Dove in, in, in um, Staffordshire and his great patron was the Duke of Devonshire of Chatsworth Duke of Devonshire was also the um, uh, the uh, uh, Lord Lieutenant of Ireland and 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 Handel's Messiah was first performed in Dublin to please the Duke of Devonshire, and uh, the Duke of Devonshire's patronage helped Handel write the water music. So, so these were very very powerful people, the, the British aristocrats of the 17th, 18th, 19th, and early 20th century. And it is interesting that a lot of the books published in the uh, early 20th century on angling in this part of the world were published um, in connection with the Duke of Rutland's interests. And just over just over the hillside from the River Dove are the rivers Lathkill, the rivers Wye, and the River Derwent. And those are all fished uh, th today and uh, have been for over 100 years um, uh, as part of the Duke of Rutland's um, landed estates and the Duke of Rutland and his family played hugely important roles in supporting um, many many uh, angling writers to publish um, so, so there are still those connections that go right up to the modern era too Now I'm sitting here in British Columbia where fishing and angling in particular is a huge phenomenon um, do you take much interest in books describing angling outside of Britain? Well, I do have a good, a reasonably good collection. I've got um, books on fishing in um, South Africa, and f books on fishing in France, and I, I'm very interested in North American fishing. And I've, I've travelled myself to the River Beaverkill in the Catskill Mountains of uh, just just outside upstate New York. The River Beaverkill. That's a really interesting Beaverkill. Beaverkill. And that's a really interesting river because there's been lots of books written on the Beaverkill. Um, because it was, um, uh, it was. We, we have a big debate um, in England about wet fly or dry fly fishing, and in in this part of Derbyshire, it's all dry fly fishing. But great fishing writers like Skews and Halfords tussled about whether the, what was the right sort of fishing, dry fly fishing on the surface or wet fly fishing underneath, and that debate was had in the rivers of North America on the River Beaverkill. So I think, I think it's absolutely fascinating that, uh, and then it was, there was a great threat to the River Beaverkill in the early uh, 20th century, particularly from forest, uh, forestation and forest clearance. And it was the, the really interesting thing there is it was the Wall Street anglers were more powerful than the Wall Street foresters. <laughs> And I thought that's, that's another really interesting thing is in the modern era, we're always concerned about the environment. We're concerned about the quality of water, pollution, 
water extraction, the impacts of farm fertilizers and pollution, uh, dams, reservoirs, and so on. And it's actually anglers that have traditionally been the biggest advocates for protecting rivers and waterways. Still true in Britain today. And right the way across North America, it's the Waltonian Societies, named after the great writer again. The Waltonian Societies are the organizations that are the most uh, vociferous protectors of uh, North America's rivers. So when you pick up a, a book on angling that you've never seen before, is there a chance you're, you're going to learn something new? Oh, I think you learn something new every day. That's the beautiful thing about working in the book trade, is that you will always find something. You know, somebody will come into the shop and they'll say, have you got such and such? And say, I've never heard of that. And they say, oh, well, I know about it because my father wrote it. <laughs> and you learn so much. You learn so much in the book trade. And of course, you never have time to read all the books that you like to to read. Um, but uh, but I still, I'm, I've, I've recently extended my fishing uh, to grayling fishing, which is a very different sort of fishing. It's a winter fishing. And as somebody described it, it's invisible flies fishing for invisible fish, as opposed to the visible fish that we fish for in the summer. And it's been great going through some of the historic grayling books to pick up techniques and and, uh, and, and, and approaches to that. So and I have a I've really I'd love to take up pike fishing at some stage in the future. I've never been able to do much pike fishing, and there's some fantastic pike fishing books that I want to read. Um, so you know, you know, there's an entire life of fishing uh, exploration and books to help you with it. All right, Jim, one last question, which we ask to all our guests. Um, what book or books are you currently reading? Right, well, I'm, I'm currently, there's two books I'm reading at the moment. The book that's by my bed at the moment is one of the, um, one of the, the, the many biographies of Winston Churchill. It's the biography by Andrew Roberts. I believe there's over a thousand biographies of Winston Churchill, um, but I have this one, and uh, I bought it from somebody who brought some books into the bookshop, and I thought, oh, I've always wanted to read that. So I'm partway through that book, which is a fascinating exploration of Winston Churchill's life. And I'm also um, I'm, I'm currently working through uh, the works of two um, very important British natural history writers, W.H. Hudson and uh, Richard Jeffries, and they were both writing around about the turn of the century, end of the 19th century. Um, uh, Hudson was a, a great ornithologist, and indeed he was the first chairman of the Royal Society for Protection of Birds, a great bird conservationist, W.H. Hudson. And Richard Jeffries, who was a fantastic all-round naturalist and countryman, and I'm reading through all of their work at the moment because um, I'd like to write a book about them. And uh, so I'm currently going through their works. Um, absolutely beautiful books. Birds and Men by W.H. Hudson. Uh, Wildlife in the Southern County by Richard Jeffries. Um, all Around a Great Estate. Wood Magic. Beautiful titles, beautiful books. And written by two immensely capable writers Hudson and Jeffries Sounds good Jim uh, That's all we have time for today 
uh, I want to say many thanks to Jim Dixon, bookseller and book collector. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Uh, you can find Jim's books on Abe Books. His account is called UK Countryside Bookseller. And uh, you can also find them at various antique centres around Derbyshire. Um, we hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you again soon.